When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hi everyone, Connor here. If you don't know already, we have launched Intelligence Squared Premium. For bonus content, early access listens and exclusive extras, just head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the episode description. Your support helps us to produce more amazing podcasts, stage more live debates each year and it will bring you even closer to the world's most brilliant minds. And if you're an Apple podcast person, hit subscribe for the bonus extras from your podcasts app too. Thanks again for all your support. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. As the UK gets its third Prime Minister since 2019, today we're asking, is the country ready for Rishi? On the show today, a special sit-down with Matthew Goodwin and Camilla Cavendish on the rapidly evolving political situation in the UK. Our host is the academic and broadcaster, Philippa Thomas. Here's Philippa with more. On Monday, October 24th, Rishi Sunak was announced as the new leader of the Conservative Party and Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. He is the youngest head of government here in more than 200 years. He is the first British Asian Prime Minister. In his first address from Downing Street, he declared that he will place economic stability and confidence at the heart of his government's agenda. And that, as he said, is about fixing mistakes. Mr Sunak takes over from Liz Truss, whose mini-budget and subsequent U-turns sparked market turmoil and party upheaval, forcing her to resign after just 45 days in office. But... As Britain heads into a winter of tough political and economic choices, can he stabilise the economy and bring the country together? Or is he another doomed leader? We're joined by two experts to help us answer these questions. Matthew Goodwin, academic author and pollster, writes a popular substack on global politics. And Matt's the author of best-selling books, including Revolt on the Right, National Populism, and coming up in 2023, Values, Voice and Virtue. 
Camilla Cavendish is a columnist for the Financial Times and a senior fellow at the Kennedy School at Harvard University. She was previously head of the Prime Minister's Policy Unit under David Cameron, and she is author of Extra Time, 10 Lessons for an Aging World. So Matt and Camilla, thank you both for joining us here on Intelligence Squared. And the first question has to be, after these weeks of political drama, what do you make of this moment? Camilla? So I guess the greatest emotion that most of the country will feel is relief. Uh, Relief at not having to tune in every five minutes to the twist and turns of politics. And I think the average person doesn't actually thank politicians very much uh, when they make us feel that we have to focus so much on policy. And I think we've had What we've seen is a population of people who've become really worried in the last few months, worried about inflation, worried about their pensions, worried about their mortgages. And that is a failure of politics, uh, in my view. So Rishi Sunak's advent and his sort of calming words on the steps of Downing Street, I think, will bring some stability. I think the markets will like him. Um, Jeremy Hunt has already, as Chancellor, started to reverse some of the worst parts of Truss's package and, and, um, you know, the guilt market seems to have stabilised. But clearly there's quite a lot more work to do. And what we don't know is, is this a profound turnaround moment in British politics uh, or is it just another bump on what could be a very long road? What's your feeling, Matt? Well, it's certainly historic. You have to go all the way back to the 1930s to find a similar uh, time where the country went through three prime ministers in one parliament. So what we're seeing, that the sheer level of volatility in our politics is is really uh, historic. I think that is also going to remain on the landscape. I'm less convinced that we're going to see stability. I think Sunak is still quite vulnerable. Um, You know, he's leading a divided party uh, that doesn't know what it believes on many of the big issues. There are different visions of all of the things that Rishi Sunak has talked about outside of number 10, levelling up, tax and spend, uh, how to deal with um, the unfolding economic crisis. And we know that he's inheriting a party that is averaging about 20% in the polls uh, that is that has lost many of the voters it won in 2019. And a good chunk of those voters feel quite loyal to his predecessor. Um, so I think it is going to be a bumpy ride for Rishi Sunak. I, I think we are still going to remain very ch- tuned into the world of Westminster. But I, but I also agree with Camilla that in, in a sense, just his opening statements and his opening positioning is is a, a breath of fresh air compared to the remarkable events of the 50, uh, nearly 50 days that characterise a trust premiership. You're both talking about relief, fresh air, you know, a sense of the shoulders down, the panic button, you know, uh, left for another day. I do want to ask you, do you think, given the way he's been ushered in, he is a fully legitimate leader? Well, it's. <laughs> I have argued um, for a general election because I actually felt that we had got to the point where the country really needed that. Um, there was no path to a general election, of course, because the Conservatives have a very big majority. Liz Truss could have asked the King to dissolve Parliament, uh, but she didn't. And it would be impossible, I think, for Labour to win a vote of no confidence um, unless the Tories fall apart. So, so I have felt, to be honest, that... 
we needed the catharsis of a general election. Um, however, there are precedents for this. I mean, Gordon Brown became prime minister in 2007 with no vote, and there were still three years, I think, to a general election. Nicholas Sturgeon in 2014 uh, took over Scotland with no vote. So, so it's not at all unprecedented. Um, it's just particularly odd because we've had a succession um, of people in the job. I mean, I was pleased that the in the end, the vote didn't go to the Conservative Party membership. Um, that, in my view, has become a problem for both parties. The fact that both parties have made, have changed their rules to make themselves reliant, give the last word to their party members is a problem because we have no longer in the age of mass parties with mass memberships. We're an age of parties with very small numbers of people who have that casting vote and who in many cases on both sides of the divide are extremists. So I felt it was much better that the MPs actually did unite around one person. And I think that will give Sunak more credibility and more legitimacy in Parliament than Liz Truss had. Matt, do you feel that stability at this point matters more perhaps than um, full-throated legitimacy in a democratic sense? Well, under the under our constitution, um, you know, sort of un- unwritten constitution and, and president, we, we, we don't need to hold a general election. As Kumala says, there are many moments in recent history where where you know, this is we've seen this unfold, and and there hasn't been uh, a general election. However, this is this is a somewhat of a a, a unique time in that um, there are clearly large numbers of people, particularly on the conservative side of the debate, who feel that really ever since Partygate, um, their chosen prime minister, their chosen political project. Um, has sort of been, you know, pushed aside in favour of what MPs in Westminster have wanted, and I think actually that sense of legitimacy really goes back much further. Much further, I think, for many people, it is also a, a sense that their vision of the entire sort of Brexit project uh, has been sort of usurped by a, a Davos on Thames type vision of Brexit that has been shared by Conservative MPs and not by many of the people who voted for a sort of more culturally conservative vision of Brexit, if you like. So that that issue around legitimacy, I think, uh, will remain there. The big strategic challenge for Sunak and the party, given how he's come into office, will be to try and find a way of mobilising many of those voters to avoid the existential um, uh, wipeout that the party faces at the next general election. So Sunak is going to have to find a way of reassuring them that uh, they need to come out and not stay at home, uh, disillusioned with the events of the last week. Um, because if they don't, the Conservatives are on on track for a complete and utter wipeout at the next general election. I mean, it's, it's currently going to be worse than 1997, uh, is essentially what, what, what Sunak has, has inherited. So he's going to have to try and cut through. And I think already in his opening statements, he's been very clear in trying to do that, in trying to make it uh, quite clear to Conservative members and voters that he is loyal to the 2019 manifesto. He's loyal to the ideas that characterised that manifesto and dominated it, which are still very popular ideas, invest in the NHS, level up the country, control the borders, lower migration, um, make the best out of Brexit. I mean, all of those things are still very, very popular. Uh, and that will that will help him cut through with those groups. And Camilla, all this without a magic money tree. Uh, I noticed Rishi Sunak in Downing Street saying, I feel compassion for what Britons are going through. Uh, but he was very, very clear 
on the need to pay down debt and on the need to, to try to balance the books? But what, what, what resources can he draw upon? Well, he's been very clear all the way through. And I, I do actually think that most people, having watched him and listened to him in the pandemic as chancellor when he introduced the furlough scheme and all the way through the leadership contest when he was making very clear warnings about the dangers of the Liz Trust package, um, will feel that he's been consistent and they will feel that he has a handle on economic management. And of course, the Conservatives' great claim has always been that they're the party of sound money and good economic management. And if they lose that, they really do, as Matt says, uh, they're going to face annihilation. Um, I think they have lost that reputation and, and whether they can get it back, I don't know. But we are heading into a very difficult time with inflation. The only um, interesting thing I've just noticed today is that the gas price, the wholesale gas price is actually coming down. Um, you know, the backdrop to so much of this is this um, horrendous spike in energy prices. Um, it is just possible that a few things will uh, bring Sunak a bit of luck. Um, clearly, our borrowing costs are likely to come down if he and his chancellor can, you know, produce a sensible fiscal plan on October the 31st. Um, that's, you know, that's again going to remove some of our vulnerability. But no, there's really, really difficult choices. Um, I mean, Matt's, you know, Matt has written and spoken brilliantly eloquently on, on these divisions within the Tory party, but one of them is going to be about pensions versus other welfare benefits. And this was a very, very live issue when Trust was in power. Um, at the moment, the position has been to keep the triple lock on pensions, but probably to only operate other welfare benefits, that's benefits for working adults or, you know, people under pension age, um, only operate them uh, in line with average wages. And that does produce a gap. And the truth is that the triple lock on pensions introduced by David Cameron for all the right reasons, he wanted to try and eradicate pensioner poverty, um, is now really unfair and unsustainable. In the last, if, if we were to rate it today, you know, we'd be uprating by another 10%. Um, we are now in a situation where the average pensioner household is better off than the average working household, which is great. I mean, that's great news. But I think the Conservative Party are very frightened that they are based on a dwindling number of older voters and they're frightened of scaring the horses. But they are going to have to take some very difficult decisions about how they treat different generations. And I was very struck by part of Sunak's speech when he stood on the door of Downing Street and he said, I'll bring the same compassion to the challenges that I brought in, in the COVID pandemic, and I will not leave the next generation with a debt to settle. Now, if he actually means that, he's going to have to take some tough choices, but he's also, I hope, going to take the younger generation very, very seriously, even if he's not hoping to get their vote. Matt, do you think that is the sort of tough choice that he's going to have to take and soon? Well, absolutely. Um, we've sort of fallen into the trap, I think, as a country of kind of dwelling on the mini budget and the effects that the mini budget had. And those effects were certainly negative. But the bigger the bigger question facing Britain, Britain PLC, if you like, is what on earth we're going to do about the sheer scale of debt that we have. And yeah. I think Sunak basically needs to level with the country and say, look, we took 330 billion odd for COVID, another 100 billion odd for energy. We've got close to 100% debt to GDP. Only last month, I think our debt interest payments went up to about 8 billion in a month. You know, And yes, some of that might come down, but the bigger issue facing the next generations of, of, of Britons is going to be how we can reduce 
that pile of debt. Um, and that's going to mean higher taxes and public spending cuts. I mean, that's basically the reality of what is going to define the next two years of the Sunak premiership and beyond. Now, that's not to say he will necessarily lose them the next election. I mean, I do. there is part of me that thinks actually Sunak is going to do very well. I think he's going to connect with a large chunk of the country that wants competency, that um, that wants somebody who's going to level with them about the scale of the problems. And, you know, go back to 2015, Cameron, of course, won a surprise majority despite having presided over a very difficult fiscal environment, including sharp cuts and so on. So it's not to say it's impossible for Sunak, but, but he is going to have to, I think, just do what Trust didn't do, which is frame his premiership very clearly from the outset. This is why I'm making these tough decisions. This is, this is the bigger picture that's facing the country. This is why we need to take this action to help future generations. And also, if you're being really blunt with the Conservatives, I mean, electorally, this week, 7% of the under 50s said they plan to vote Conservative. Like, electorally, the Conservatives are in a sort of demographic death spiral, you know, and if they don't kind of actually connect with not just 18 to 24s, but the under 50s, it's going to be a massive, massive problem uh, coming down the track. And I think being straight with people about the scale of this problem, explaining it is also partly global and what this is going to involve for all of us. And it might be that he needs to think about, you know, one-off solidarity type taxes. I don't know. He's going to have to think outside the, the bag in terms of how he frames it. But it's going to be tough. But, but I, I've got a sneaking suspicion he might just pull it off. Just a reminder, you can support Intelligence Squared and get even closer to the world's most brilliant minds by signing up for Intelligence Squared Premium. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com or see the link in the description to get started. And Apple folks, we've got you covered too. Hit subscribe for some bonus extras on your podcast app. Thanks for all your support. So Camilla, he's going to have to be tough. He's going to have to be persuasive. Does that mean he's going to have to just own the fact that He's rich. He's privileged. He doesn't know what it's like uh, to be in the shoes of the ordinary voter. Just, you know, face up to that, get over it, get on with it. Yeah, totally. And, and it's not unusual, is it? I mean, you know, he obviously got into some hot water over his wife's non-dom status. And a lot of people, myself included, did worry about his naivety, really, about that. In, for a man in such a high position to not have realised that that was going to become an issue. Um, but I think we've had, look, we've had a succession of leaders who've been pretty well off. Um, Boris Johnson, you know, was a pretty privileged guy. He just played a brilliant hand of being deeply, deeply human and flawed. Um, unfortunately, I think the public then became rather fed up with that because the flaws uh, really became sort of insurmountable. So yeah, he has to own it. And, and the fact is, you know, he seems to be a very positive story. He's an immigrant. His family are immigrants. He came to this country. He's made good. You know, one of his parents was a doctor. He has got a very, very rich father-in-law who was a very successful entrepreneur. Um, I think that's different from the sort of inherited wealth that really is no longer acceptable in Britain. I think he does have to own it, as you say, but he has to kind of get on with what Matt's talked about, which is the competence. I mean, what we are all crying out for, really, in this country is competence. And it'll be quite interesting to see, actually, when he goes head to head with Keir Starmer. I mean, I was sort of thinking today it'll be like nerd versus nerd, won't it? Because, you know, these guys both look actually quite sensible. 
that's quite professional, you know, thank heavens for that. My view is we have not really had a properly functioning government since 2019. Um, one of my critiques of Boris Johnson was necessarily his views, but his in, real inability to take the job seriously. And so many things have been on the slide since then. You know, we've had governments that have constantly criticised Whitehall. The trust government basically went to war with many of the financial institutions, the Bank of England, the OBR, even the Treasury. Um, putting that back together and actually building a team of decent people who can do the basic job um, it's shameful to say it, but that will be a really major bonus if he pulls it off. Can I turn us to look at Rishi Sunak's Britain in the world, partly because there's so much crowding onto his agenda right now. One of the things that he has to face is this bid to throw out EU law, you know, by the end, by December next year. But the bill, the bill faces its second reading in the Commons uh, this week. Jacob Rees-Mogg, very keen that laws that we have accumulated through our history with the EU uh, should be allowed to slip away. I mean, that is one of those things that's not sexy, but it's really significant. I mean, Matt, is that the sort of thing Rishi Sunak is going to have to grasp? Well, absolutely. He, you know, the other thing about Sunak is he's coming into the party at a time where the sort of big political realignment post-Brexit has been really just collapsing all around the Conservatives. So he's also got to be he and his team will be coming in thinking, right, you know, first point is we need to start winning back some of the people we've been losing. And that means, you know, winning back some of the people in areas like the Red Wall and talking about issues to do with Brexit and the EU, not in a aggressive, unnecessarily provocative way, but certainly conveying to the country that they still believe in that project and they're going to make the best of it. And the flashpoints, not only in terms of the... Um, EU laws, but also he's going to have to come up with a strategy for Northern Ireland and what happens with the Northern Ireland protocol. He's also going to have to decide what he wants to do on the small boats. Like how hard does he want to push the dispute with the European courts and the ECHR? Liz Truss famously said she was going to go all the way, whatever it took. She then rode back. Suella Braverman said, well, one of the problems with the Trust government is they didn't do what they said they were going to do in dealing with that issue, which would have obviously played well in the red wall type seats that the Conservatives need to hold. So he's going to also need to decide what he's going to do on that. We've got the trade agreements, which he's going to have to also make a big deal out of. And also, what are the concessions and trade-offs with those trade deals? Is Rishi Sunak a believer in what Trust was a believer in? Is he a believer in global free trade and high migration? And let's allow more people to come to the UK in exchange for access to other markets. And we're still waiting for the India-UK trade deal. Well, that might not seem like it's a big deal in London and university towns, but for many people who, vote, who voted Conservative in 2019, that you know the liberalisation of migration policy outside of Europe is not what they wanted to see, and that was Johnson's big decision. One of the one of the reasons, by the way, Johnson didn't get the required number of nominations is because a lot of Red Wall MPs were saying in the final hours of that leadership contest, or the, the soon-to-be leadership contest, that they felt Johnson had let down their voters because of some of those policy decisions. So Sunak's going to have to carve out a position on that. And then, you know, if he's smart, what I think he will try to get to before the next election is a bigger vision, a grander vision of what global Britain is all about relative to the United States, much bigger, more ambitious trade deals. He won't be able to do any of that before the next election, but at least start to convey that he is the first post-Brexit prime minister who has a serious vision uh, of where he wants to take Brexit Britain in the global 
uh, sphere. And if he can do that and he can elevate to a statesman-like um, uh, uh, image and, and, and can take on that stature, I think he will, he will go down extremely well in the country. And Camilla, I want to allow you to pick up from that and just to drop in um, the thought that... Uh, one of the Tory party's influential donors, Guy Hans, has, has recently taken aim at, at the hard Brexit negotiated by Boris Johnson as a root of Britain's economic turmoil. So re- there is also that question of, can, is Brexit uh, available to revisit? Is a softer Brexit something that Rishi Sunak might want to address? Or is it too late? I think a few weeks ago, it became acceptable to say the B word again. It has not been possible to say the B word for quite a long time, especially for those of us who backed Remain. I worked for the Prime Minister, obviously, who was campaigning for Remain, and um, we lost that vote. And members of my family voted to leave. So I am acutely aware um, of some of the issues. And Matt is the the world's greatest expert on Brexit, as far as I'm concerned. So I, I do defer to you, Matt. But I personally cannot see how the post Brexit Prime Minister's vision, as you've put it, is going to be creditable unless it is willing to acknowledge that the downsides of the hard Brexit. I think the party, the Conservatives in power, have struggled and struggled, and this is one of the reasons we've had this volatility, to find the answers, to find this mythical Brexit dividend. Shutting ourselves out of the single market has led to lower growth. I mean, we we can debate the details of that, but but it's pretty clear to me. The political risk, and it's true for Labour as well, is that if you even suggest for a nanosecond that you might reopen the deal, a whole lot of people who voted to leave um, will jump on the other side. I mean, what's interesting is that the polls have started to show a majority of people saying, wow, maybe we made a mistake. Now, that's not the same thing as people who voted to leave saying that they made a mistake at the polls. I think a lot of people were seriously misled. And I do think that the deal that Theresa May struck um, and that Boris completed was too hard and it wasn't necessarily exactly what people wanted. I had thought back in 2016 that the immigration issue was paramount. I totally agree with Matt, we should take that very seriously and we still need to take it seriously. But there were other ways we could have solved that issue. So I just don't know how much we can put on the shoulders of Sunak. Um, I suspect he will need to fudge some of this. Um, I think the one thing I would expect him to do is have a much more pragmatic tone. Um, The antagonism that Boris Johnson and Liz Truss have shown towards Brussels, towards France, towards major European allies, including, you know, towards Ireland, has just been fundamentally unhelpful. And I do think that there are probably better ways to do business, but we have to grow up and start doing business with those countries. If you were going to give Rishi Sunak one piece of advice, Camilla, would that essentially be it, be a grown-up? He doesn't need that advice from me. He is a grown-up. Matthew Godwin, what would your advice be if you could have Rishi Sunak's ear for just, you know, 10 or 15 minutes today? Well, I mean, the first thing he has to do is unify his party. Um, So in terms of his appointments and how he positions the Conservative Parliamentary Party, I mean, I think he's going to have to avoid the mistake that Liz Truss and Boris Johnson made. He's going to need to make appointments from across the uh, Conservative camp. He is going to have to bring in people from different factions because these are big factions. You know, there are there are big groups within the Conservative Party and he's going to have to try and acknowledge 
uh, and reflect those groups in, in his appointments. If he does what Trust did and he just doubles down on his own side, he is going to run into some big problems very quickly because he is in a vulnerable position. So the first thing is just unify the party. I think the second, the second key thing, which we've seen in his opening speeches and his, his positioning, is to develop his brand of, of, of post-Brexit conservative politics to give his his winning formula, if you like. Um, and we talked about the mistakes of previous prime ministers. I mean, here's one. Neither uh, Theresa May, um, Boris Johnson or Liz Truss really took ideas seriously. I mean, there were some exceptions, particularly in the May premiership. There were people who were interested in ideas and the intellectual architecture of what conservatism should be about today. But Johnson and Trust were not interested in that clearly. They had very fixed views. They didn't want to engage. They didn't want to experiment and develop a new philosophy, if you like. I think Rishi Sunak will have to step back from the immediate chaos and the, the humdrum of politics and think, OK, how am I going to actually rebuild this party? Uh, because the Conservative Party doesn't really know what it believes and what its purpose is at the, mo at the moment, apart from basically saying, well, we're here to deliver fiscal co conservatism. And even there, there are some pretty big tensions around, you know, how the, how the party should do that and how it should deal with some of these tax policies and how far it should go with things like spending cuts and what the levelling up strategy, strategy should be and so on and so forth. So that as well is, is, is something that he's going to need to, to think about. And just lastly, bring forward a generation of new conservatives and bring back some of the former big beasts that were alienated by the Johnson regime. He's going to have to, I think, turn up the volume on people like Kemi Badenoch, a kind of future conservative leader. He's going to have to bring forward younger red wall type MPs, people like Miriam Cates, who are very, very sharp, very uh, have a very firm grasp of the new conservative electorate. And he's going to have to show the country that actually, that, you know, in a way, he's going to have to sort of draw a line between the Truss and Johnson premierships, which were highly toxic and unpopular across a large chunk of the country, and convey, you know, through these optics that this is a different kind of Conservative Party, which is not going to be easy. But I think if he does that, he might buy himself some time going into that next general election where people are willing to give him five minutes. I feel from you both that sense of sobriety about the times we're in and the challenges that face the new Prime Minister. Matt, do I also sense excitement? Well, I... I think for everybody, and Camilla conveyed this in her opening remarks, I think there is a sense that, you know, we just want a functioning government. I'm getting a bit tired of going to conferences in Europe and being told that Britain has become Italy and we, we no longer have a sort of, you know, stable civic political culture like we, we used to be famous for. I mean, the Westminster model, the kind of classic idea of British politics of strong, stable, predictable, um, consensual government has basically been one of the victims of the post-Brexit era, like whether you're a Remainer or a Lever, you know, we can all see that chaos and volatility have become a new feature of Brexit Britain. That's the reality we, we, we face. So I'm quietly hopeful that a Sunak-led government can try, can begin to re-restore some of that stability, some of that fiscal competence. Uh, but, but, but just to be clear, I'm also very, very anxious about a large part of the country. We've got we've got 2 million people coming off um, fixed rate mortgages next year. We've got um, an energy deal that only gets us to April. Uh, we've got spiraling costs of, of debt, record um, debt payments, you know, that we've not seen for 60 years. Um, and I think it's not yet dawned on the country just how brutal the next 
year, two years, maybe longer, are going to be, especially for public services. And they're already not functioning uh, as they should be. And I, I, for that reason, yes, I'm very sort of, you know, somber, but I'm also very worried, actually, about the country. And I don't think people have quite clocked how bad things are going to be. And on that point, Camilla, a final thought from you about whether you think this government is sustainable, whether whether you think we really are motoring towards another general election, because the public is going to have to have a say, if it's going to be so Um, brutal. I don't think we're going to get a general election now until 2024, um, unless something else goes really wrong. Um, I think, just to build on Matt's point about policy, um, I think the NHS and what they do about that is paramount. Um, We have a crisis in the NHS. I mean, we're always saying that, but this is a real crisis. We have 7 million people waiting for treatment and we have a huge staffing crisis. We're spending £6 billion on agency staff. There is quite a lot that could be done to fix that. And it's not all about money, but it is about grip. And one of the problems we've had in the last couple of years is we've just had a shifting cast of characters. We've had people in politics just focused on politics and not policy. And it's time to do the detail. And if he can do the detail and bring in serious people around the cabinet table, whatever their political views are, who can do detail, then I think we can stagger through the next two years. Competence, grip and detail. We're going to leave it there. I'd like to thank Matthew and Camilla for a fascinating conversation. I'm Philippa Thomas and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Head to iq2premium.supercast.com for even more content made just for our premium listeners, including extended Q&As, event discounts, and our newsletter too. Thanks for being a part of Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world... And whatever you're doing, right now, you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.